I will freely admit, so don't feel ashamed if you would agree with me, that the title, the theme for this evening's message or sermon might be one of the dumbest I've ever come up with. Because it's kind of one of those, well, duh, the Savior who saves. That's kind of like if you have a plumbing issue at your home and and you call the, the plumber and you, you ask for them to send somebody out, but you make sure that before they send somebody out that it's somebody who knows plumbing. Or if you call the electrician, you want to make sure, does he know what he's doing with electrical stuff? Of course, you're calling the electrician. So I get it. It's obvious. It's stating the obvious to say the Savior who saves. And yet... As we observe and celebrate Christmas once again, given the fact that Christmas has been celebrated for so many generations, one of the things that can happen over time is that a thing can lose its meaning. Or different generations or cultures can attach different significance or meaning to it. I'm not talking about simply those traditions that you look forward to with your family each and every year. I'm not talking about those those memories from Christmas's past that you have with loved ones, but actually realizing Christmas is important for a reason. And going back to the the very first time that, that Christmas continued or started to be celebrated regularly, there must have been a reason. It must have been a significant event for somebody to make such a big deal out of Christmas. And indeed, it is a big deal. Because Christmas is about the Savior who saves. Words can change over time, right? You know this just from the English language. There are certain words that you perhaps used in your childhood or or in years past that might be very offensive if you were to pull them out today. There are words that were very powerful and, and impactful in the past that just don't pack the same punch as they do today, or, or today as they did in the past. Words that have totally lost their meaning over time as well. And of course, that's the last thing that we want to happen with the word Savior. And more importantly, with the person who is the Savior. To lose the significance of what that word Savior means, and more importantly, what Savior means for us. See, Savior especially is one of those words that that can lose its meaning this time of year because we see it so frequently. It's on Christmas cards. You see it in services like this. You hear it in songs that are sung. And, And it's one of those things that the more you hear a word, it just kind of is lost its significance. Like when you see the same thing in the same place all the time and your mind kind of filters it out. You don't even notice it anymore. For example, if any of you are, are local and you've driven at any point in recent history by the Cotillas in Santee, did you know that Cotillas is now serving new menudo? I bet you didn't. And I bet you didn't know they were serving new menudo because beneath the Cotillas sign, those words new menudo have been there for at least 10 years, if not more. And so your brain filters it out. It's not new. You don't even have to know what menudo is because you don't even notice the sign anymore. You are so accustomed to seeing it. Your brain just tunes it out, filters it out. Again, that's the last thing that we want 
to happen when we talk about Jesus. And this probably more than any service over the course of the year is one that is, is often ten, uh, attended throughout Christian churches by, by those who come from such a wide variety of backgrounds and beliefs. So you probably came here tonight with maybe some unique ideas about what Savior even means. And maybe some of those that I'm going to share with you are, are ones that you hold to a, a part of uh, or are familiar with. One of those, the first one, is this idea that the Savior, that Jesus, who Jesus really is, is simply a wise teacher. And if you know anything from Scripture, if you've ever read or heard any stories about the Bible, about Jesus and his ministry, it's true. You'd know that as you listen to him teach, he was a very wise teacher. He had a knack, an ability to take very difficult spiritual concepts and through simple stories relatable to people called parables, he would make those concepts approachable and understandable. And oftentimes in his ministry, Jesus' own enemies would, would come to him trying to uh, paint him into a corner, put him between a rock and a hard place with some, uh, some theory, some idea that, that they would surmise there's only two ways that Jesus can answer here and both of them are going to be wrong or we're going to catch him one way or another. And consistently, Jesus turned the tables on them and called them out for what they were trying to trick him and showed his wisdom in the process. So yes, Jesus was a wise teacher. Others look at him kind of like that partially unwrapped present and they see, well, there's a good guy. He's a good individual. Jesus is somebody that regardless of what you believe in terms of religion, most people respect He's a good example. He's a guy that we seek to emulate. He treated people well. He was kind. He was loving. He was forgiving. Things that aren't necessarily all that common in our culture, our world today. And so we look to see to Jesus and we see a good example, a moral individual that we want our children and we ourselves want to be more like. And perhaps that was captured, I don't even know how long ago it was now, when, when it, it became popular to wear bracelets or apparel with the letters WWJD. And so anytime that you were in a bind, that you were stuck, that you were looking for guidance or weren't sure what to do, those letters would remind you, what would Jesus do? Because he was such a good guy, he, he made the right decisions. I want to be like Jesus, so let that guide your decision-making. And there's some value to that, but that's just partially unwrapping the present, isn't it? Others, maybe taking a little bit more of a religious view on this Jesus, would say he's kind of like the finished carpenter. We put in the hard work. We do everything that we can in the remodel project in, in our lives. We put forth our best effort. We try our hardest. We're pretty good people, but everybody makes mistakes and nobody's perfect. So thank goodness that Jesus came in to finish everything for us. So that God looks at us and he says, good job, good try, good effort. I'll take it from here. And that's where Jesus comes in. Maybe it's, it's one of those three approaches to Jesus. Maybe it's, uh, it's some combination of them. But sadly, all of them miss the mark. And if that's where it stands in our understanding of or appreciation for who Jesus is, then that's certainly going to dampen our joy, not only at Christmas time, but long after as well. 
So who exactly is this Jesus? Not just a, a wise teacher, not just a, a good guy, not the, the guy that came to finish what we tried to do but couldn't complete on our own. In fact, you already heard this evening who this Jesus is when the angels announced it. Listen again to what they said to the shepherds. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. You, you heard the word right there, didn't you? The angels did not announce the good news to the shepherds. Today is born to you a wise teacher. They didn't proclaim today is born in the, in the town of David a, a pretty good guy that you should try to be like. No, you heard the word. Today is born to you a Savior. And, and they attached to that a, a joy that was not just for the shepherds, but for the entire world. And that joy stemmed from the fact that Jesus came into the world to be the Savior for the entire world. Which is to say that regardless of your beliefs, your background, your behavior prior to coming here this evening, Jesus came to be your Savior. And that's essentially what Paul cemented in our second reading from Titus this evening. You heard the words already as, as I read them. And as they, as they sink in and as you reflect on them, you listen to um, Paul. He's writing to uh, his fellow pastor, Titus, and he's encouraging him, reminding him about what this is all about. He says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us. Not because you tried your best, not because you were a pretty good person, but because of his kindness and mercy, because of his love. And mercy is really what captures how he went about it. He didn't give us what we deserve because, as he underscores, we could not do this on our own. There are no righteous acts that we could offer up to God. We are not able in any way whatsoever to save ourselves or make ourselves right with God. You've maybe heard the, the story, the illustration previously, and I don't know how much truth there is to it, but I always assume that as a story or illustration is repeated, it probably had some basis in truth at, at some point. The story of a, a mother and a son going to the beach, spent a day at the beach, and after playing on the sand for a little while, while mom was just kind of relaxing and keeping herself occupied, her son asked if he could go into the water to go swimming. And they agreed that that was okay so long as he didn't swim out of her sight, so long as she could look up and see where he was at. And everything was well and good for a while. And then at some point she had looked up after a while and had a little trouble finding him at first. So she scanned the, the waves and she finally caught sight of him. She noticed that he seemed to be pretty far out and didn't feel comfortable with how it looked like he was swimming. So she went over to the lifeguard tower and she let the lifeguard know, my son is out there swimming and I feel like he's, he's out there too deep and he's not doing well. Could you please go and rescue him and bring him back in? 
And the lifeguard pulled out his binoculars and, and scanned, and he found the son that she was referring to, and then he put down the binoculars and stood there. And she looked out and scanned and, and saw her son again, and this time she noticed he was starting to really struggle quite a bit out in the water, and she's starting to get agitated, a, a little bit nervous, and says to the lifeguard, my son is out there and, and he's really uh, got me worried. He doesn't look like he's doing so well. Please go out there and, and bring him back in. And he pulls up the binocular and again and looks and, and agrees, puts it back down and stays put. She looks out one more time and now she sees he's flailing his arms and he's bobbing up and down from the water and she pleads to the lifeguard, please, I don't know how long he's going to make it. Go out and rescue my boy. He looks and then he makes his way into the water, swims out. Eventually he brings the boy back safely to the beach, rescuing him. And of course she's grateful but she's a little bit resentful to the lifeguard. Why did you wait so long to go out and rescue him? I, I told you right away that he was struggling out there. And the lifeguard explained to her that as long as her son was kicking and flailing about, they both risked drowning. It wasn't until he had exhausted all of his energy that he was limp and finally then the lifeguard could safely drag him back into the beach. And to a degree, that is all of us. By nature, as long as we are kicking and screaming, as long as we are insisting, as long as we are trying to do it ourselves, there's no way that we can be rescued. It, it's not until we recognize that impossibility that Jesus has to rescue us that it can happen. In fact, that even limps a little bit because the reality, the way the Bible speaks, is not that we are, are born in this world kicking and screaming, trying our best. The reality, the way the Scripture speaks, is, is that we're dead, spiritually incapable of doing anything on our own. But until we recognize that, then Jesus is not able to rescue us. When Paul writes that that Jesus is our Savior, that he came to save. He underscores that, that very point. It's by grace. It's by his mercy. It's because of his love, because of his kindness. And as long as we refuse that, as long as we reject it, well, then we forfeit it as well. And we miss out on the salvation that he came to bring us. Paul goes on in writing in these verses to explain Having been justified by his grace, here's the outcome. We might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Paul says, using a, a, a churchy word there, justified, he's saying, you've been declared not guilty. Regardless of your past, the cross means that it's been paid for. Jesus has washed it away. You aren't condemned. And because of that, we have life. Because of that child who came in on, on Christmas into our world, we have life. That Jesus, in his mercy, endured the scorn of the cross. That Jesus, in his perfect, holy, 
obedience met the standard of perfection that is required for heaven? Who of us doesn't want a holy heaven? And, and if it's going to remain holy, then there can be no sin in it. So it stands to reason that perfection is a requirement, and Jesus met that for us. And in his mercy, sacrificed himself for us so that God's justice could be carried out and sin was paid for. That's why it's such a big deal that we know that Jesus is not just a wise teacher, a good person, or somebody who can finish the job for us, but somebody who carried it out completely. He is the Savior who saves. And because he is, Christmas means that we don't need to be afraid of death. Christmas means that joy will endure. Christmas means there is no condemnation. Christmas means that we have real peace with God forever. Because Christmas means we have a Savior who saves. Amen. Merry Christmas.